Good morning, everyone. I hope everybody had a good week. I can't believe it's uh, October 1 already today. Time's flying. Time flies by when you're having fun, right? So let's get into it. I'm going to review uh, Chapter 8 quickly. Um, started off setting in the, in the Midwest, USA. And we got introduction to the Mormon Church. There's a couple new characters. There's John Ferrier. And his little girl Lucy, John officially takes Lucy as his own, since he saved her from the uh, calamity that happened with that first caravan that went through. Then they're uh, both sleeping away on the mountain, and the, the caravan comes along with 10,000 strong. And there's a score of men leading the caravan, around 20 people. Uh, the elderly man in charge of that little crew in front, Turns out to be our one of our characters from London, who is now deceased, Joseph Stangerson, one of the leaders of the Mormon Church. And like I said, as you know, he is uh, turned up dead. And we know that um, through Sherlock Holmes' work back in London, that they have the murder of the Stangerson and Trevor, which is by Jefferson Hope, which we don't know who that is yet. I was assuming that uh, he was the narrator from the after the, the narrator after um, Watson, but I'm not really sure about that yet. If he's a narrator or not, we'll have to see what happens down the road with that one. So that's where we're at. So the uh, the two of them are taken into the fold of the um. The Mormon Church, and as soon as John Ferrier heard they were from Nauvoo, Illinois, he knew right away that uh, they were the Mormons. Because the long history goes back, that's where they started out, and I guess everybody back then knew the whole story. So they put him in a fold, and then the next thing we see is the they mentioned the second in charge was to bring him young of the of the Mormon church, and he directs Stangerson, Joseph Stangerson, to take them under their wing. And they make a comment that uh, Bingham Young's voice is the voice of Joseph Smith, which is the voice of God. So they're in the, they're in the Mormon church, and they're continuing on with their trip to Utah. And the title of the next chapter, chapter 9, is called The Flower of Utah. Now, I'm going to do something different this, this week. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, I'll go over a couple of points I noticed up through, the, through the chapter. And then uh, we'll make a couple other other comments on uh, what we just read. And then following week, I'll do another review of chapter 9. And this, I think it might be easier for everybody to follow if we just read that whole chapter first. Then I'll, then we can kind of pick it apart afterwards. Then we'll go from there. Okay? So let's begin. Chapter 9, The Flower of Utah. This is not the place to commemorate the trials and privations endured by the immigrant Mormons before they came to their final haven. 
from the shores of the Mississippi to the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, they had struggled on with a constancy almost unparalleled in history. The savage man and the savage beast, hunger, thirst, fatigue, and disease, every impediment which nature could place in the way, had all been overcome with Anglo-Saxon tenacity. Yet the long journey and the accumulated terrors had shaken the hearts of the stoutest among them. There was not one who did not sink upon his knees in heartfelt prayer when they saw the broad valley of Utah bathe in the sunlight beneath them and learned from the lips of their leader that this was the promised land and that the, these virgin acres were to be theirs forevermore. Young speedily proved himself to be a skillful administrator as well as a resolute chief. Maps were drawn and charts prepared in what future city was sketched out. All around, farms were apportioned and a lot of the tradesmen was put to his... I'm sorry, let me start that back. All around, farms were apportioned and a lot in the proportion to the standing of each individual. The tradesman was put to his trade and the artisan to his calling. In the town streets, the squares sprang up as if by magic. In the country, there were draining and hedging, planting and clearing until next summer saw the whole country golden with a wheat crop. Everything prospered in the strange settlement. Above all, the great temple which they had erected in the center of the city grew taller and larger. From the first blush of dawn to the closing of the toilet, of the clatter, of the hammer and the rasp, of the saw that never absent from the monument which immigrants erected to him, who had led them safe through many dangers. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so they're saying that God led them through many dangers here. The two, the two castaways, John Ferrier and his little girl, who had shared his fortunes and had been adopted as his daughter, accompanied the Mormons to the end of their great pilgrimage. Little Lucy Ferrier was born along pleasantly enough in Elder Steinrich's wagon, a retreat which he shared with the Mormons' three wives and with his son, a headstrong, forward boy of twelve. Having rallied with the elasticity of childhood from the shock caused by her mother's death, she soon became a pet with the women and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving canvas-covered home. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the meantime, Ferrier, having recovered from his privations, distinguished himself as a useful guide and invaluable hunter. So rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions that when they reached the end of their wanderings, it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with a large, fertile tract of land as any of the other settlers. With the exception of Young himself and Stangerson, Kimball, Johnson, and Drebber, who were the four principal elders. I'll repeat that. So rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions that when they reached the end of their wanderings, it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with a large and fertile tract of land as any of the other settlers. With the exception of Young himself, and Stangerson, Kimball, Johnson, and Drebber, who were the four principal elders. On a farm thus acquired, John Ferrier built himself a substantial log house, which received so many additions in succeeding years that it grew into a roomy villa. He was a man of a practical turn of mind, keen in his dealings and skillful with his hands. His iron constitution enabled him to work in morning and evening and approving and tilling his hands. Hence it came about that his farm and all that belonged to him prospered exceedingly. In three years he was better off than his neighbors. In six years he was well-to-do. In nine years he was rich. And in twelve 
there are not a half a dozen men in the whole state, in the whole of Salt Lake City, who could compare with them. From the great inland sea to distant Wasatch Mountains, there was no name better known than that of John Ferrer. There was one, one, oh, there was only one way and only one in which he offended the sensitivities of his co-religionists. No argument or persuasion could ever induce him to get up a female establishment after the manner of his companions. So I guess John did refuse to to go along with the traditions of the Mormon Church. He never gave reasons for this persistent refusal, but contented, contented himself by resolutely and inflexibly adhering to his determination. There are some who accuse him of lukewarmness in his adopted religion, and others who put it down to greed of wealth and reluctance to incur expense. Others again spoke of some early love affair and of a fair-haired girl who pined away on the shores of the Atlantic. Whatever the reason, Ferrier remained strictly celibate. In every other respect, he confirmed to the religion of the young settlement and gained the name of an orthodox and straight-walking man. Young Lucy Ferrier grew up within the log house and assisted her adopted father in all his undertakings. The keen air of the mountains and the balsamic odor of the pine trees took place of nurse and mother to the young girl. As year succeeded to year, she grew taller and stronger, her cheek more ruddy, her step more elastic. Many a wayfarer upon the high road which ran by Ferrier's farm felt long-forgotten thoughts revive in his mind as he watched her little lith girlish figure tripping through the wheat fields, or met her mounted upon the father's mustang, and managing with all ease and grace of a true child of the West. So the bud blossomed into a flower, and the year when she saw her father, the riches of the farmers left her as the fairest specimen of American girlhood, girl, girlhood as, she, as could be found in Hope Pacific Slope. It was not the father, however, who first discovered that child had developed into the woman. It seldom is in such cases. That mysterious change is too subtle or too gradual to be measured by dates. Least of all, does the maiden herself know until the tone of her voice or touch of her hand sets her heart thrilling within her, and she learns with a mixture of pride and her fear that a new, larger nature has awakened with her. There are few who cannot recall that day and remember the one that little isn't which should hurt herald the dawn of a new life. In the case of Luciferier, the occasion was serious enough in itself, apart from its future influence on her destiny of that many besides. It was a warm June morning on the Latter-day Saints were as busy as bees with whose hives they have chosen for their emblem. In the fields and in the streets rose the same hum of human industry. Down the dusty high roads defiled, defiled long streams of heavy-laden mules, all heading to the west, for the gold fever had broken out in California. Over the overland route lay the city of, of the elect. There, too, were droves of sheep and bullocks coming in from the outlying pastures, and trains of tired immigrants, men and horses equally weary of their interminable journey. Through all this motley assemblage, threading her way through the skill of an accomplished rider, there galloped young Lucy Ferrier. Her fair face flushed with the exercise of her long chestnut hair floating up behind her. She had a commission from her father in the city and was dashing in as she had done many times before with all the fearfulness of a youth. 
thinking only of her task and how it was to be performed. The travel-stained adventurers gazed after her astonishment, and even the unemotional Indians, journeying in their peltry, relaxed their accustomed stoicism as they marveled at the beauty of this pale-faced maiden that was driving, riding by. She had reached the outskirts of the city when she found the road blocked by a great drove of cattle, driven by a half-dozen wild-looking herdsmen from the plains. In her impatience, she endeavored to pass this obstacle by pushing her horse into what appeared to be a gap. Scarcely as she got fairly into it, however, before the beast closed in behind her, she found herself completely embedded in a moving stream of fierce-eyed, long-horned bullocks. Accustomed as she was to deal with cattle, she was not alarmed in her situation, but took advantage of every opportunity to urge her horse on in the hope of pushing her way through the cavalcade. Unfortunately, the horns of one of the creatures, either by accident or design, came into violent contact with the flank of her mustang and excited it to madness. In an instant, it reared up on its hind legs and snorted of rage and pranced and tossed in a way that would have unseated any of the most skillful rider. The situation was full of peril. Every plunge of the excited horse brought it against the horns again and goaded it in fresh madness. It was all that the girl could do to keep herself in the saddle. Yet a slip would mean a terrible death under the hooves of the unwielding, terrified animals. Unaccustomed to sudden emergencies, her head began to swim and her grip upon her bridle to relax. Choked by the rising cloud of dust and by the steam from struggling creatures, she might have abandoned her efforts in despair, but for a kindly voice at her elbow which assured her of assistance. At the same moment, a seemingly brown hand caught the frightened horse by the curb and forcing away through the drove and soon brought her to the outskirts of the herd. You're not hurt, I hope, miss, said the preserver respectively. She looked up at his dark, fierce face and laughed saucily. I'm awfully frightened, she said naively. Whoever would have thought Poncho would have been so scared by a lot of cows. Thank God you kept your seat, said the other earnestly. He was a tall, savage-looking young fellow, mounted on a powerful roan horse and clad in the rough dress of a hunter with a long rifle slung over his shoulder. I guess you are the daughter of John Ferrier, he remarked. I saw you ride down from his house. When you see him, ask him if he remembers the Jefferson Hope of St. Louis. If he's the same Ferrier, my father and he were pretty thick. Ah, interesting. Had you better come and ask yourself, she asked him demurely. The, yellow, the young fellow seemed pleased at the suggestion, and his dark eyes sparkled with pleasure. <laughs> I'll do so, he said. We've been in the mountains for two months and are not over and above in visiting condition. In the visiting condition. He must take us as he finds us. He has a good deal to thank you for, and so have I, she answered. He's awful fond of me. If those cows have jumped on me, he had never would have gotten over it. Neither would have I, said her companion. You, well, I don't see that it would make much matter to you anyhow. You ain't even a friend of ours. The young hunter's face, dark face grew gloomy over this remark that Lucy Ferry laughed aloud. There, there, I didn't mean that, she said. Of course you are a friend now. You must come and see us. Now I must push along, and Father won't trust me with his business anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye, he answered, raising his broad sombrero and bending over her little hand. She wheeled her mustang around, gave it a cut with a riding whip, and darted away in a broader road in a rolling cloud of dust.
Young Jefferson Hope rode on with the companions, gloomy and taciturn. I'll repeat that. Young Jefferson Hope rode on with his companions, gloomy and taciturn. He had been among the Nevada mountains prospecting for silver and were returning to Salt Lake City in hope of raising capital enough to work some loads which he had discovered. He had been as keen as any of them upon business until this sudden incident had drawn his thoughts into another channel. The sight of the fair young girl, as frank and wholesome as the Sierra breezes, had stirred his volcanic, untamed heart to its very depths. When she had vanished from his sight, he realized that a crisis has come into his life, and neither silver speculations nor any other questions could ever be such importance to him, as he knew all-absorbing one. The love which had sprung up from his heart was not sudden, changeable fancy of a boy, but the rather wild, fierce passion of a man of strong will and imperious temper. He had been accustomed to succeed in all that he undertook. He swore his heart would not fail in this human effort and human perseverance could render himself successful. Sounds to me like uh, love at first sight here. Very beautiful. He called on John Ferrier that night and many times again until his face was a familiar one at the farmhouse. John, cooped up in the valley and absorbed in his work, had little chance of learning the news from the outside world during the last 12 years. All this Jefferson Hope was able to tell him, and in the style which interested Lucy as well as her father, he had been a pioneer in California, and he could narrate many a strange tale of fortunes and made fortunes and made fortunes lost in those wild, pleasant days. He had been a scout, too, a trapper, a silver explorer, and a ranchman. Wherever stirring adventures were he had to be had, Jefferson Hope had been there in search of them. He soon became a favorite with the old farmer, who spoke eloquently of his virtues. On such occasions, Lucy was silent, but her blushing cheek and her bright, happy eyes showed only too clearly that her young heart was no longer her own. Her honest father may have not observed this, these symptoms, but they were assertively not thrown away upon the man who had won her affections. <laughs> it was a summer evening when he came galloping down the road and pulled up to the gate. She was at the doorway and came down to meet him. He threw the bridle over the fence and strode up the pathway. I'm off, Lucy, he said, taking her hands into his, into his and gazing, turning her down to her face. I won't ask you to come with me now, but you'll be ready to come where I am here again. And when will that be, she asked, blushing and laughing. A couple of months on the outside. I will come and claim you. I will come and claim you then, my darling. There's no one who can stand between us. Lucy just looks and thinks and asks, How about my father? she asks. He has given his consent, providing we get these mice working all right. I have no fear on that head. Ah, oh, well, of course, if you and father have arranged it all, there's no more to be said, she whispered with her cheek against his broad breast. Thank God, he said, hoarsely stooping and kissing her. It is settled then. The longer I stay, the harder it will be for me to go. They are waiting for me at the, at the canyon. Goodbye, my own darling, goodbye. In two months you shall see me. He tore himself from her as he spoke and flinging himself upon his horse, galloped fiercely away, never even looking around as though afraid this resolution might fail him 
if he took one glance at what he was leaving. Stood that she stood at the gate, gazing after him till he vanished from sight. Then she walked back into the house, and she was the happiest girl in all of Utah. That's the title of the chapter, The Flower of Utah. Let's just go back and look at a couple of quick points here. That was a good chapter. It seems to me, I'll just uh, say this, that uh, a few of our questions got answered. I'll read the questions again. I'll let you folks figure out the answers. Who is Jefferson Hope? Besides, we know as uh, Sherlock discovered the, the murder of two men. Who is seeking revenge, revenge on these two that were killed? And who is the woman that has the mysterious wedding ring that was intended for her? Now, if we go back in the beginning of the chapter, we see that the, the two, two gentlemen who turned up dead in London are one of the elders of the group, Standerson, Kimball, Johnson, Drebber. So Standerson and Drebber are definitely involved in uh, something here because they turned up dead, as we know. And it looks like John Ferrer is kind of taking his own own way and going against some of the uh, traditions of the Mormon church, which could lead to a lot of problems, I think, coming down the road. But we'll have to wait and see. And they show one picture here of the of Jefferson Hope rescuing uh, Lucy by grabbing the horse by the collar and pulling the horse out of the madness of the cows. There are a few illustrations in this book, that's for sure. So I'll leave you with that. And then uh, next week, I'll go ahead and uh, do a good review on Chapter 9. I think we all know where this is heading. I think we all know the answers to the questions. And I think we all know who the Flower of Utah is. <laughs> the only thing I'm really confused on yet, which I'm hoping to find out soon, is the narrator. Because the, the narrators of the book, is very important role is just as anything else is in the book. I am still quite like 50-50 that it's John or uh, Jefferson Hope narrating this section of the book. I haven't seen anything to tell me that it isn't, and I haven't seen anything to tell me that it is. So right now we're just going to have to assume it's the author himself narrating the story. All right, folks. Everybody have themselves a great week. Think about the questions. I, uh, Like I said, I'm working on a website. My website's going to be with uh, GoDaddy.com. And once I get that up and around, I'm going to have everything transferred over from our podcast to the website. And then in future, I'm thinking of uh, just an idea. I'm going to get a Patreon channel. And if I can get set up properly, I'll do a video readings instead of just reading through through a mic. You'll get to see me read with you, with for you, and with you. That'll be on Patreon, and that that will cost a dollar a month if I ever get it set up. The way things are so busy anymore, it's hard to say how far I'll get along with that. But, but once again, thank you for uh, understanding my missteps. I'm very new at this. I'm still I'm trying to get better. 
And I appreciate everybody who listens to my podcast. I thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I'm very thankful for you, for y'all. I hope you enjoy the reading. And I look forward to getting the reading for you next Sunday. Have a great week. And watch it because it flies by very fast. Bye for now.